I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine Podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, October the 8th on CBC Radio. It's been an unprecedented weekend in Israel and the Gaza Strip. Hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians have been killed and many, many more injured. Hamas launched a series of surprise attacks inside Israel. Israel's responding with airstrikes in Gaza. The situation remains unpredictable this morning. We'll bring you the latest and then we'll explore the bigger implications for the region and the world. Later on, more on the situation in the Middle East and the breach of Israel's security. And then we will turn our attention to domestic politics by looking at how two former prime ministers helped shape modern Canada with Globe and Mail columnist John Ibbotson. And before we leave you on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we'll be testing your brains and mine with our monthly challenge, That's Puzzling. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. More than 24 hours after Hamas infiltrated Israel, launching a series of unprecedented attacks, the fighting and violence in Israel and the Gaza Strip continues this morning. The Israeli military continues to respond with airstrikes on Gaza, while also trying to regain control in its own country in a number of areas where Hamas militants have infiltrated. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist based in Dubai. I spoke with him earlier this morning. Good morning. I know there's still a lot um, happening and continuing to happen. Can you just bring us up to date on what the latest is? The latest, as you said before, there is still some ongoing fighting inside of Israel proper. There's a handful of communities, uh, towns in southern Israel, where there are ongoing hostage situations. There are militants who have barricaded themselves inside of homes and, and they have Israeli hostages. And so the army is trying to take back control of those areas. There's a slightly bigger medium-term question about how Israel is going to respond to this in Gaza. It's already started airstrikes, but uh, there is talk about a possible ground offensive. Israel has called up a number of reservists. I think we're going to have to wait a few days until we see uh, exactly what the Israeli response will look like. Israel has also warned um, the residents of Gaza, 2.3 million people inside that strip of land, you know, only 40 kilometers long, 12 kilometers wide, to flee. Where will the people of Gaza go? 
There's nowhere to flee. This is something that the Israeli government advises them to do uh, every time there are hostilities in, in Gaza. They have nowhere to go. They are trapped on one side uh, by an Israeli blockade, on another side by an Egyptian blockade, and, and then by the Mediterranean Sea. So it's a very densely populated place. There are no bomb shelters or safe areas that people can go to. Uh, and that is one reason why every time there's a conflict in Gaza, uh, the numbers of casualties are so horrific. The word that we've all been using over the past 24 hours or so is unprecedented. It was an astonishing series of attacks by Hamas militants. And of course, there are many years, decades of history behind this story. These attacks occurred um, 50 years this weekend from the Yom Kippur 1973 war. Contrast this moment to some of the bigger past inflection points we've seen between Israelis and Palestinians. We've heard a lot of those comparisons to 1973 in the sense of this being an intelligence failure. The Israelis, for all of their intelligence gathering capabilities in Gaza, uh, seem to have been caught completely unaware by this. But if you look at what actually happened on the ground yesterday, these scenes of militants roaming around Israeli towns and, and cities of uh, dead bodies piled up at bus stops and, and inside of houses. You have to go back even further, I think, to find an analog for that. These are scenes that many Israelis say haven't happened inside the country since 1948, since the War of Independence. Uh, so an incredibly jarring and, and shocking moment, uh, of course, for the entire country and for the national psyche. Uh, the death toll, some Israeli outlets are now reporting it has crossed 600, uh, which, to put that in perspective, is, is more people than were killed in, in the previous 19 years, going back to 2004. Uh, more Israelis were killed in a single day yesterday, it seems, than in, in 19 years of the conflict before that. Let's talk about the West Bank. Tensions have been brewing there over the past year. That's where the focus of the Israeli military has been. The Israeli government has ramped up settlement construction in the occupied West Bank. Israeli settler violence has displaced hundreds of Palestinians there. For people who don't intimately follow the relationship between them, what do they need to understand about what's happened in these months leading up to this? Right. And I think there's there's two things worth uh, remembering about the past few months. One is, you know, everyone has been asking in Israel how this could have happened, how the army could have missed this. And one thing to point out is that the army has been focused on the West Bank much more than in Gaza in recent months. And it's been focused there uh, in large part because of the policies of this right-wing government that uh, has been in, in control of Israel for about a year now, uh, which have brought tensions to a boil in the occupied West Bank. And the army has been focused on that and, and has not paid as much attention to Gaza. The other thing is that there are internal Palestinian dynamics at play here. You have a looming succession struggle where Mahmoud Abbas, the president, is 87 years old, uh, not in good health, uh, is quite likely to, to die in the coming years, does not have a successor in place. His nationalist party, Fatah, uh, is, is quite unpopular. It's seen as uh, at this point, little more than a subcontractor for the Israeli occupation in the West Bank. Uh, and the Palestinian Authority, the limited self-governing body in the West Bank, is historically unpopular. Most Palestinians at this point would like to dissolve it, would like to get rid of their own government. So there is this political battle going on between Hamas and Fatah. And what happened yesterday, I think part of the reason why Hamas uh, went ahead with this 
uh, unprecedented attack on Israel was was with an eye towards its own political considerations, towards uh, not only humiliating Israel, but also uh, taking hostages, taking captives that it hopes to exchange in a prisoner swap to further boost its political standing amongst Palestinians. Yesterday, you posted on social media, quote, There is a bizarre analytical tendency to forget that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is decades old and rooted in real grievances, or maybe not bizarre. Can you expand on what you mean by that? There was a lot of immediate analysis in the the first hours uh, after this attack began yesterday, uh, trying to attribute it to the recent talks about a Saudi-Israeli normalization deal. Uh, Of course, the the, um, United States has been pushing for that for the past few months, and the Biden administration thinks it can broker a deal whereby it would offer a defense treaty to the Saudis, and then the Saudis would agree to recognize Israel. And so there's been a lot of commentary around whether or not uh, Hamas or or perhaps Iran, which provides support to Hamas, wanted to sabotage Israeli-Saudi normalization by carrying out this attack. And I just think it's very premature to jump to that conclusion. For one thing, this was such a complex operation. Uh, It was obviously in the works for months, if not years, long before Israeli-Saudi normalization was something that seemed plausible or imminent. Uh, but the other thing is, I think it just it, it seeks to attribute to geopolitics what you can really blame on uh, much more local domestic concerns in in Israel and Palestine, and that is uh, not just the the miserable, intolerable uh, socioeconomic conditions in Gaza, but also again the, this ongoing political struggle happening uh, amongst the Palestinians. There is, of course, concern this could turn into a wider conflict. This morning, a senior official with Hezbollah has said to Palestinian militants, quote, our guns and rockets are with you. There was shelling from southern Lebanon overnight. Put that piece of this um, puzzle into context for us. That is certainly a concern for the Israelis and also for, for a great many Lebanese that this might end up drawing in Hezbollah as well. I would say what happened this morning, the shelling on it's on an area known as the Shiba Farms, which is a disputed sliver of land in the Golan Heights. Lebanon claims it, Syria claims it, Israel controls it. Um, there have been incidents there in the past. There was a Hezbollah attack in 2015 uh, on an Israeli convoy. There was a roadside bombing in 2016. Uh, there have been these sorts of isolated incidents that didn't escalate any further because there is an implicit understanding between, I think, Israel and Hezbollah that when when the latter targets the Shaba farms as opposed to targeting towns in northern Israel proper, uh, that it's not meant to escalate beyond that. And so I think what the group was trying to do this morning is to show solidarity with the Palestinians, but to do something that was not meant to escalate into a full-blown war. Now, obviously, tensions are quite high right now, and and things could escalate regardless of what either Israel or Hezbollah want. But I think uh, shelling that particular area this morning was really meant to send a symbolic message and not much more. Perhaps while um, much of the world has not been paying attention um, to the tension uh, between Israeli and Palestinians, we have been paying attention to the domestic politics in Israel and the judicial reforms that uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been focused on uh, for the past number of months. There's been lots of protests uh, in Israel. To what extent was that a distraction, perhaps, in your assessment to what has happened here? That is a question that a lot of people are asking right now, and I think 
a proper answer to that is probably going to have to wait for the inevitable Israeli commission of inquiry that I'm sure will be set up after the war uh, to look into this. But I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that it had some impact. This is a prime minister who, for more than a decade now, has made his pitch to voters about security and his security credentials. But he has spent the past year preoccupied with uh, these these domestic political considerations. Uh, you've had issues within the military where a number of army reservists announced before what happened yesterday that they would boycott their mandatory service in protest of these proposed judicial reforms. They have now gone back on that and, and uh, reported for duty. But uh, you've had questions around the army's preparedness. So uh, on the one hand, the army is is not able to do its job properly. On the other hand, the political echelon is distracted. Uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that had some impact here. Prime Minister Netanyahu has promised uh, retaliation, warning of a long and difficult war. He has said that he plans to um, move residents, Israeli residents, near uh, Gaza by tomorrow because the forces will be going in heavier in into Gaza. We can talk about militants and militaries, Greg, but at the end of the day, there are millions of civilians who will be caught up in all of this. What is your biggest concern in the, for the next few days? Well, it's, I mean, it's exactly that. Um, yeah, I think one question looming over this uh, Israeli counterattack right now will be whether or not they decide to approve a ground offensive to not only attack from the air as they typically do, but to send in Israeli troops on the ground. Uh, if you think back to the last really big war, which was in 2014, the 50-day the war in the summer of 2014, there was a lot of pressure from right-wing politicians to greenlight a ground offensive. Prime Minister Netanyahu at the time ignored that pressure in part because the army didn't want to uh, engage in weeks of bloody urban combat. But there is going to be significantly more pressure for a ground offensive now, not least because of, of these dozens of Israeli uh, hostages who have been brought into Gaza. Uh, and that is going to be much worse, I, I think, than anything that we have seen before. It's going to be street-to-street -street urban fighting in a place where civilian residents really don't have anywhere to go. And so in a place where life is already impossible, intolerable for so many people, where poverty is widespread, where uh, the electricity is on sometimes only a few hours a day, where clean water is difficult to find, uh, add to that urban fighting, uh, again, in a, a territory where people have nowhere to flee. Uh, it's, it's going to be a, a very difficult and very bloody few weeks ahead. Greg Hallstrom, I appreciate you helping us understand this better. Thank you. Thank you. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist based in Dubai. I spoke with him earlier this morning. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. This is The Sunday Magazine. Okay, so let us zoom out further from this ongoing crisis to look at the geopolitics in play. Thomas Juno is an associate professor of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa who focuses on the Middle East. I spoke with him earlier this morning. Good morning. As we've been hearing, this is still an active, ongoing crisis. How are you assessing this situation right now? Well, right now, uh, and I think Greg uh, provided a really good comprehensive overview in the last few minutes, it's very uncertain. Uh, from a, Looking at this from a regional perspective, it is not clear if there is going to be a northern front uh, like your previous guest, I'm, I'm, my, my best guess at this point is that it is more unlikely than not, but nobody can be sure about that. How will other regional powers intervene? What are the implications for uh, an eventual Saudi-Israel normalization deal? There are a lot of questions that have been just 
just thrown up in the air with a lot of uncertainty for now. Okay, let's get your assessment on some of those questions, because the bigger conflict is... Um, definitely think things that people are concerned about. So let's start with Hezbollah and, and Lebanon um, getting involved. We heard Greg there uh, talk about his assessment of what Hezbollah um, has, you know, said and done in the last 24 or so hours, but put Hezbollah into the picture of the wider Middle East and um, where it might fit into this. So Hezbollah is a, a, a state within a state in Lebanon on the northern border with Israel. It is a, a militia and a political party. It has seats in parliament. It's had, it has had cabinet ministers over the years. It is, uh, you know, to say that it is a state within a state in Lebanon is a bit of a misnomer because it is more powerful than the Lebanese state. It has a militia that is one of the most powerful militaries in the region. It has something like 200,000 rockets, uh, largely provided by Iran. Uh, so it, it represents a tremendous force on the north northern front with Israel. And as much as there is a serious risk of escalation, and I absolutely do not want to sound optimistic that there will not be escalation on the northern front, one reason why a number of analysts uh, are, are, are very, very cautiously optimistic that beyond small skirmishes, it might not blow up on the northern frontier is that Hezbollah is so powerful now that there's a bit of a balance of terror that has been established between it and Israel in the sense that if there is open warfare between the two of them, the damage that each will be able to inflict on the other will be absolutely massive. It is not just Israel that can uh, cause massive damage in Lebanon, vice versa. Also, Lebanon, Hezbollah can do that to Israel. So that right there is a powerful reason for the two sides to try to exercise restraint. Hmm. Okay. Let's bring in Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned, um, had been in the midst of finalizing a deal with Israel brokered by the U.S. that would ease relations between the two countries. This would be historic if it had happened. And I think in the last number of weeks, people were hopeful uh, that it might happen, or at least a lot of people. And then yesterday, the Saudi Ministry of Foreign Affairs said it, quote, holds Israel responsible for what has transpired due to its repeated provocations and deprivation of the rights of Palestinians. How does... What has happened in these last 24 or so hours complicate things for, for the Saudis? So at the very least, it certainly does complicate things. Beyond that fairly general uh, stating the obvious statement, uh, we'll have to see a bit how the dust settles. Will there be a ground invasion of Gaza by Israel? How prolonged will it be? How bloody will it be? How controversial will it be? That will affect the Saudi calculus. <clears throat> Sorry, that will affect the Saudi calculus moving forward. Um, you know, there were a lot of people were were pointing in the direction of a Saudi-Israel normalization deal. It would have been a bit of a triangular deal with the U.S. involved, U.S. security guarantees to Saudi Arabia, nuclear support from the U.S. to Saudi Arabia, normalization between Israel and the Saudis. Uh, I was not as optimistic that it was so close to being done. There remained, I think, a lot of obstacles, especially once the three sides were starting to dig into the details. At the very least, this raises the bar. Uh, this makes it more complicated for Saudi Arabia. There was always something awkward for Saudi Arabia to normalize with Israel in the absence of a formal resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which had been Saudi Arabia's position for decades. Um, this is a reminder uh, what's been going on for the last 36 hours, mm -hmm. that any kind of deal between Israel and Saudi will be very difficult on the Saudi side in the absence of such a resolution. Help us understand uh, this. Three years ago, Israel signed a bilateral normalization agreements with both the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain. These are known as the Abraham Accords. You just talked about Saudi as well. At what, what 
what was in it for these Gulf states to normalize or potentially normalize their relations with Israel? They haven't done that in decades, ever. Well, that, that's a good question, and there, there's different ways to look at that. But clearly, one element that brought Israel, and especially the UAE, because that has been the most important member of the Abraham Accords on the Arab side. There's also Bahrain, there's also Morocco, and there's also technically Sudan, though there's a lot of uncertainty on that side. From the UAE's perspective, uh, there was an element of uh, banding together with Israel against a common enemy, which is Iran. Uh, so that there was an element of, of building a, a loose coalition to cooperate against Iran. That was very clear. Uh, one of the aspects of cooperation that really developed between Israel and the UAE was on the security front. Uh, Israel selling, uh, you know, defense and security technology to the UAE, for example, more intelligence cooperation. Some of that had already been going on before the Abraham Accords, but the Abraham Accords gave it, gave it a bit more of a framework. Um, there have been some tourism dimensions, some other economic dimensions, but that security dimension was always really key. And that's why Saudi Arabia, even though so far at least it is not a member of the Abraham Accords, it tacitly supported them because it agreed with the idea of uh, grouping with Israel against Iran. So many countries are walking um, a tightrope here. Um, Egypt has, in past conflicts, um, been a mediator between the Israelis and Palestinians. We know that Egypt also blockades one side of the Gaza Strip. Um, how critical is Egypt at this moment and what do you expect from it in the next couple of days? So Egypt is going to be, to play a critical role in the next hours and days, possibly weeks, as a mediator. Uh, Egypt Egypt in the, is in the unique position that it has re- good relations with Israel. There has been a peace treaty with Israel for about 45 years. It's a cold peace, but it's uh, still a peace. The security and military establishments on both sides... Israel and Egypt were closely together, but Israel also has channels with Hamas and other groups inside Gaza. So as soon as we are going to start talking about prisoner exchanges, uh, a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas and the other smaller groups on the Palestinian side, Egypt will be playing an absolutely critical role to try to uh, facilitate those talks. It will play a shuttle uh, role between between the various sides in some cases. Because from Egypt's perspective, uh, the stability in the Gaza Strip is an absolute priority because, as you as you just said, Egypt also shares a border with Gaza. So violence spillover, terrorism in Gaza also affects uh, Egypt. So it, it does have an interest in quieting things down as soon as possible. We'll talk about the Western world in just a moment, but I want to ask you. Sometimes we see the world is smaller than it is, and there are superpowers: um, China, India. Where do they fit into all this, if anywhere? Uh, for now, it's a secondary role. For now, the the one external power that plays a key role is the U.S., and then, of course, all the regional powers that we've been talking about also play a key role. China and Russia have a role to play in broader terms, but in the short term, much less. Uh, China has been playing an increasingly important economic role in the Middle East that is now the largest trading partner for a lot of Middle Eastern countries, in some cases far in front of the U.S., but it, its diplomatic and security role in the region has really been lagging far behind it. Its, its economic presence, uh, and especially on the Israeli-Palestinian file, which is so sensitive, it, it you know it issues press releases every now and then, but its political role is marginal. Russia is interesting because it has been ramping up some aspects of its presence in the Middle East in more recent years. It has become very close to Iran. The two of them cooperate very closely in Syria and Ukraine in particular, which has been a significant concern for the U.S. and, and some of its allies. But at the same time, Russia has always been playing a, a bit of a, a, a delicate balancing game. Despite these relations with Iran, R- Russia 
keeps relations with Israel and the two of them cooperate and they have an interest in in finding that balance. So in the short term, also, I, I expect Russia to try to, to you know, to call, call for calm and so on, but not to play a major role. Yeah, Russia condemned the attacks yesterday. Of course, there are lots of Russian um, citizens who live in Israel, who who have, who have become citizens of Israel. So we'll watch that um, more closely. And thank you for putting that part of the world into all of this context. I do want, of course, want to talk about the United States, Israel's closest ally. President Joe Biden pledged rock solid, in his words, support for Israeli uh, security and for the country. What the U.S. says and does is critically important. It sends billions of dollars in aid to Israel every year, closest ally, but it is criticized by many as not being a so-called honest broker. That criticism comes from the much of the Arab world. What does the U.S. do now? Uh, in the short term, the U.S. tries to to use its its contacts, its networks, its power to to quiet things down and to help find a resolution. So we talked about Egypt a couple of minutes ago. I expect that the U.S., uh, which also has uh, you know close relations, not always easy, but close relations with with Egypt, to support Egypt's role as a facilitator, and it will support other ways of of making sure that happens. In the meantime, as President Biden said yesterday, the U.S. will also support Israel in its military efforts against Hamas and. Other groups in Gaza. So right there, there's always been a bit that tension in the in the U.S.'s role of supporting Israel, but at the same time trying to position itself as some kind of problem solver. Uh, so the, there's always that tension, and we'll we'll fully see that tension in action in the in the next days and weeks. The U.S. Congress is in chaos. It has no speaker. Funding, congressional funding, is often um, where these things come from. I'm assuming that complicates things for the U.S. as well. Uh, it does in the longer term, especially if things do drag out, which is a scenario that that we can't exclude. That being said, in the short term, uh, at the executive uh, branch level, the the U.S. can uh, act with with sufficient autonomy uh, to to provide the support to Israel that it deems necessary, and to try to play that that mediator role. You know, yesterday, my one of my kids said, "Can you explain this all to me? Who's on whose side?" And I said, "You know, a number of years ago, the alliances were were clearer." The world order has been upended. The war in Ukraine, this, the rising powers, China, India. How does this situation, and and it will continue over the coming days and weeks, how does what's happening in the Middle East right now complicate the world order? Uh, it's a, it's a difficult question. I think, as as you said, it, it 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 exemplifies the growing instability in the world. You talk about Ukraine. We could mention a number of other conflicts, Ethiopia and and, and elsewhere uh, in Yemen, a conflict that I follow a lot. Uh, what we are seeing right now in the Gaza Strip is the result of years, and for that matter, decades of accumulation of unresolved problems. Um, you know, Israel's strategy towards the Gaza Strip, in particular, uh, is often referred to as mowing the lawn, in the sense that the problem is not resolved, but there's an effort to manage it. Uh, and every time that it becomes a bit less manageable, then forces used to try to bring it back to a quote-unquote manageable level. And what we're seeing now is how difficult and probably how increasingly difficult that is uh, in the sense that I expect that we're going to see violence at a high level, uh, more than in previous rounds of combat uh, between Israel and various groups in Gaza. Um, Is it going to last days, weeks, a bit more than that? I have no idea. Neither does anybody else. Um, But the problem is not going to be resolved. At some point, there's going to be a lid on it, uh, and, and we're just going to repeat the cycle. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about our own country, Canada. Yesterday, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, 
talked about standing behind Israel, firmly condemning these attacks uh, on Israeli soil. Is there a role for Canada to play in all of this? No, there's really not much of a role to play. And I don't mean that as criticism of, of anybody. Uh, we are just not a player in the conflict. It's, it's perfectly fine for Canada to take a position. But at this point, it's a rhetorical position. Uh, Canada can provide you know, limited support to Israel, uh, which, is, which is the country that we typically, or the side that we typically support in this dispute. Um, but it's going to make a, a marginal difference. There's going to be, and you can fully expect a lot of people uh, to call for Canada to play a role of honest broker. Uh, but mostly that's a romantic idealism based on a supposed honest broker role we played in the past. But right now, there's no there's no opening for Canada to play that role. To the extent that anybody is going to play that role, uh, on the Western side, it's going to be the U.S., but mostly it'll be on the local side with Egypt and eventually others like Qatar or Kuwait or others. So for now, this is just not something that, that we can do much about. Thomas Juno, I so appreciate your assessment and analysis of all of this and helping us understand this very difficult situation so much better. Thank you. Thank you. Thomas Juno is an associate professor of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa who focuses on the Middle East. I spoke with him earlier this morning. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for joining us on this Thanksgiving weekend here in our country. And in indeed, with the turn in the leaves and pumpkins starting to line doorsteps, we are clearly in harvest season. And for some Indigenous communities, that means rekindling a relationship with a crop. Minoman, which is also known as wild rice, has grown in several parts of North America for thousands of years. It's one of the only cereal grains indigenous to this part of the world, and it's crucial to Anishinaabe culture. But for years, its cultivation was disrupted by colonial forces and other factors. Well, now communities are working to spread seeds and knowledge about tending, harvesting and cooking with Minoman. We visited Curve Lake First Nation, which is near Peterborough, Ontario, for their fourth annual Minoman Harvest Festival to learn more. I don't know. I think oh, no. they might have messed up. Now, I can continue acting this as a, a stern double, double. if anybody okay. needs yeah? it. Yeah? Okay, well, I think somebody else yeah. wants to take up position. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of people waiting. When we first started, there was only very little people coming today. There's about 500, maybe more, going out to put the rice seeds into the rice fields and that, so that the rice fields will grow. My Anishinaabe name is Megizu Okwe, Benishin Nodem, Minoekunishin Medewin Dishgabo, Ukum Kungi Benjabanaba. My English name is Shirley Williams, Dr. Shirley Williams. I am. Um, traditional woman. I was formerly born and raised in Okamakong. I have lived there uh, teaching at Trent University for the last 20 years or more so now. I've been been invited to come and help out to bless the rice. I'm going to start now, now that the plane is gone. <laughs> so, how <clears throat> do to offer our tobacco so that you grow, so that you can grow daily. To bless the water so that the water and the seeds will help to grow every year. 
We are practicing our ways of life that the Shabbagapa was done. When I was a little girl, my father brought this uh, dish. He brought it from my mother and he says, look what I found. And um, he called it Menomen. And he said, this is a very sacred food. But that's all he said at that time. We were forbidden to practice our ways of living. Whenever we did that, we were forbidden. So my people became scared because of the colonization. The practice of doing the rituals for racing got away. But there was still people practicing it and doing it in a sneaky way, I guess. It never died. And uh, because now that we're free, that we can talk about things in the open, do things in the open without being punished, um, we can do that now. So the racing methods and the rituals that we do is coming back to our people. So they're reincarnating what was passed down to us by the Creator. The way to think about it is, is like for Anishinaabe people, wild rice is like in our DNA, just like corn is in people's DNA of South America. It's like what you eat the most of to sustain you. My name is Sean Adler, and I'm the chef and owner of Pow Wow Cafe Catering and the Flying Chestnut Kitchen. Yeah, so wild rice is a very nutty and fragrant flavor, and it's super versatile. So I think a lot of people on restaurant menus or in the common Canadian public, I think they think of it like it goes with turkey. Which is true, it, it's harvested in the fall. However, today, you know, we're eating it in a salad. We're eating a wild rice pilaf. We're having it in soup. We're having a wild rice pudding. And uh, it's a pretty special to be part of this uh, festivities because it's really important that wild rice is still growing in our lakes, right? We used to eat the wild rice pudding, the baked pudding. It immediately sends me back in time, immediately. As soon as I taste it and I look at it and I hear the laughter of the the multiplicity of generations that are here and the, the quiet conversations and the Anishinaabe language being spoken actively, there is an awakening in my blood memory, there is a remembrance, there's a immediate connection to so many that aren't walking the earth anymore. Anin Bojo, Mishuke and Dodam, Shkudenigan, Wawaskonan and Dishnikaz, Shwanagan Dunji, Curve Lake and Dunjaba, Nishinabe Kweo, Jibwe, Bodawatami and Dao. I am Grandmother Kim Wheatley. I'm from Shwanaga First Nations. I'm Turtle Clan. I identify as Ojibwe and Potawatomi. And I currently live right here in Curve Lake First Nation. So we have three generations here today. Myself, my youngest daughter, and my youngest grandchild. And she is experiencing for the first time to be out on water to interact with the monomen, which is referred to as wild rice, even though there's nothing wild about it. It's a complete food for us. It is the foundation of our migration story. We followed the food that grows on water, and we continue to honor not only the gifts that it brings to us, but the practice of relationship to the earth herself. This is not just food. It supports food sovereignty for sure, but it is our connection to the past, the present, and the future. So powerful. I think these reseeding and restoration efforts are 
critical to empowering people to resume those plant care roles that Canada worked so hard to break. My name's Britt Luby. I was born and raised in Treaty Number no. 3 in what is currently known as Northwestern Ontario. I'm also a professor at the University of Guelph, where it is my immense privilege to be working on the Monoman Project, a crop restoration initiative in partnership with the Sichuan Anishinaabe Nation. It's this project that has inspired some of my most recent writing, like the children's picture book, The Gift of Monoman. I can only speak to disruptive factors in my ancestral territories, and my elders have testified that hydroelectric development in the Winnipeg River drainage basin has led to an exponential decrease in the amount of monomen my relatives have been able to harvest since the post-war era. There are many other factors impacting monomen growth. One I think that is very important to identify is the Canadian residential school system. Children were historically removed from their communities around the same time as the monomen harvest. And this made it incredibly difficult for families to pass down traditional ecological knowledge. Climate change will also impact monomen growth into the future. So a while back, I was out in my ancestral community for the field season, and I thought, oh, this year we're going to have a beautiful harvest. And climate scientists are telling us that storm frequency will increase as a result of the climate crisis. And towards the end of the season, right around the time you would pull in that food to feed your families through the winter, we had a big wind go through and it took all the seed. It was heartbreaking. I, um, I sat in the boat and I cried. So I would say that attempts to protect and revitalize crops have been continuous since the first known colonial interruptions until today. We see petitions from chiefs to the Department of Indian Affairs indicating that water levels are impacting people's ability to eat and quality of life and reminding them to look at the treaties and reminding them that the treaties were supposed to ensure mutual benefit and demanding better treatment, better care, and better conversation between water regulators and the Anishinaabe. A Benoman seed, I think, is evidence of ancestral love. When you hold that seed in your hand, you know that the ancestors prepared for your arrival. They put those parent plants back into the river in hopes that one day I could eat well, that my nieces and nephews could eat well. Those seeds are a reminder that we were cared for even before we were born. I think Monoman is a gift because it allows us to imagine how we might contribute to our communities and the well-being of others by planting that seed ourselves. And, you know, a young child can pack a monoman seed into a mud ball and return it to the river from the shore. So this is an activity that can accommodate all ages. So you're never too little to know that you are critically important to the people around you and to the ecosystem around you. All of these other than human relations 
their care for us is evidence in that seed. I think the gift of a Manoman is a reminder that we're loved. That was historian and author Britt Luby. Her latest book is called The Gift of Monoman. Before her, sounds from the Monoman Cowan Harvest Festival at Curve Lake First Nation, which is near Peterborough, Ontario, in Williams Treaty Territory. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians are dead. Thousands are injured. There are fears that this eruption of violence could get worse. It could spill over into a regional conflict. Here to offer his insights on all of this and more is Dan Arbel. He's a scholar in residence at the Center for Israeli Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. Dan's also a former longtime member of the Israeli Foreign Service, most recently Deputy Chief of Mission at the Embassy of Israel in Washington. I spoke with him earlier this morning. Good morning. I know it's Good been. To be here. Yeah, thank you for being with us. I know it's been a lot in the last twenty-four plus hours. Um, how would you characterize what's been happening this weekend? You know, as you've said, Pia, this is unprecedented, uh, horrendous uh, scenes from from what uh, is is looks like a, a terrible blunder. Um, by Israeli authorities, by the Israeli military, by political uh, leadership, uh, as to um, surprise attack on a morning of, of a holiday uh, where most people are at home. Uh, and uh, Hamas invades uh, in, in a very you know, sophisticated way from air, sea, land, manages to infiltrate into the population centers and you know, shoot indiscriminately or take hostages or prisoners of war and, and, and sow havoc and, and, and damage and, and death. And it's, um, I have family uh, back in Israel, uh, children and elderly dad, and, um, you know, they keep on running back and forth to the bomb shelter as their rockets being launched from the Gaza Strip. And so this is very, uh, uh, a terrible sense of, uh, of, um, of insecurity, of, uh, of, of, of um, just uh, chaos uh, that we're witnessing, and uh, you know, and 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 we have to see how the coming days will unfold. But this is really uh, unimagined uh, scenes that we're that we're watching uh, from afar. Let me ask you about your family and friends, and um, I just want to acknowledge your concern for them. Understandably, um, I'm sure they're angry. I'm sure they're scared. I'm wondering though what they're saying, just anecdotally, what you're hearing from them. In terms of, as you called it, I'll use your word, a blunder by Israel's security forces. So, you know, Israel uh, 
as, as you well know, uh, just uh, commemorated the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur, October 1973 war, uh, in which uh, Israel lost 2,600 uh, soldiers, and which was also uh, very much associated with the intelligence failure. The reading was on the wall, yet uh, Israeli intelligence and, and the political leadership did not foresee a possible Egyptian-Syrian attack on the morning of Yom Kippur of October 1973. And for years, uh, this trauma of, of the 1973 surprise attack kind of, uh, was something that was always said that it would never be repeated because Israel learned its lesson and, and therefore Israel will always be prepared. And yet uh, what, what you gather from everybody that you speak to is just a sense of total shock and surprise and unpreparedness and just... Uh, Still now, I hear uh, people saying that, that, that have been called for reserve duty, that they don't have enough equipment, they're looking for food. They're, the whole issue of distribution right now taking place within reserve units that have been mobilized you know, uh, in an emergency fashion is also lacking. So, so something, something it's a system, it seems like a systematic failure that we're witnessing right now. How, how does that happen, though, Dan. This is one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world. You know, I, I lived in Jerusalem. I've covered a lot of Israel. I've, I've been to many places. I've been into Gaza. I know how fortified the Arabs crossing is. I know there's there's wire fences elsewhere, but this is not easy to breach the security in, into Israel. And this is the trillion-dollar question. How on earth could have this happened? You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, there will be uh, ample time for, for inquiry commissions to look into what exactly happened and, and, and you know, why it happened. But I think it has to do a lot with, first of all, a sense of, uh, you know, overconfidence, invincibility, sense of that, you know, we're invincible, sense that, you know, uh, nobody can actually, uh, uh, you know, surprise us and so on and so forth. I think, that, and that trickles down to, 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 to the working levels. And I think that also, uh, in terms of, uh, Strategically, these last few weeks, uh, the idea of the Israeli Defense Forces diverted a lot of its attention, a lot of its units, to police the West Bank and to make sure that things don't, don't spin out of control uh, in the West Bank as a result of, of uh, what was going on there. And so a lot of attention in recent weeks was focused on the West Bank and kind of neglecting the Southern Front, allowing it to basically be vulnerable and open to this, such an attack. So we see these jeeps ramming through the gates, jeeps of Hamas, and these are scenes that are not supposed to happen. And you're right, you know, uh, Israel, Israel, Israeli intelligence knows, you know, if there's a convoy of Hezbollah in the north carrying weapons to, from Iran to Hezbollah, they know exactly what's on truck number two and truck number three hmm. and what weapon and all that. Yet, under under their noses, in inside, you know, on the border w uh, with Gaza, they they they, they just uh, fail to comprehend or to understand or perhaps mis misinterpreted the, the signals of what was about to happen. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is no stranger to, to leading Israel. He's been in power for many years. He's fought many wars. He's, he's been the leader of the country as it's been many conflicts, um, you know, in, in 2006, in 2008, nine, in 2014, just to name a few. I asked one of our guests in our last hour this, and I want, to, I want to get your assessment of this. He has been, though, focused on the domestic front, the judicial reforms he's been trying to get in, a lot of pushback from a lot of Israelis over, over the last year. How much do you think that might account for him 
not paying attention to the security uh, uh, situation? I think that uh, he has, uh, you're right to suggest that, you know, his experience and, uh, you know, he was for years associated or was called Mr. Security and he campaigned on it. Uh, he's, he, you know, he did bleed wars, but he was always known as to be risk averse, meaning that he wasn't uh, gung ho happy to, to go to war. And then always, uh, you know, kind of reluctantly uh, felt that at times that needs to be done. But I think that we're seeing a whole different Mr. Netanyahu in recent years, and especially in the last year since he took off, returned to office with this uh, far-right government, uh, which includes extremist elements, uh, uh, ultra-nationalist parties, ultra-Orthodox parties. And I think that his focus, his attention, his government's focus was on the domestic front, on passing this very controversial judicial overall plan. And and I think, uh, and also sowing division within Israeli society. And I think that uh, security matters uh, were, were not a top priority, or at least uh, there were other issues that were more burning in his, uh, from his point of view. And, and I think that that, you know, I, I don't know if it's directly, uh, you know, uh, but it certainly contributed to this uh, broader sense of, uh, of uh, false security. Let's talk about Hamas. Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, um, is, is has just said they haven't seen any evidence Iran was behind the latest attack in Israel, though there are longstanding ties between um, Hamas and it. And it, I guess, I, I ask the same question: How was Hamas, um, who you know operates from within the Gaza Strip and outside as well, of course, how was it possible that it could pull off such a sophisticated attack? I think the Hamas did not think that it could, you know, in its wildest dreams, I don't think that they thought that they could achieve such a, you know, success from their point of view. Um, yet they did uh, definitely uh, feel that, you know, they, they, they for, for, for years they've been talking about in this scenario of infiltration into Israeli towns and villages along the border has been uh, well known. And actually the IDF has been preparing for it, but when, when it actually came to it, uh, Israel was unprepared, but Hamas was preparing for this for, for a long time, and this was uh, this particular uh, attack was prepared, for, you know, for months, and it was very coordinated, as I've said, from land, sea, and air, and uh, involved a lot of a lot of planning. And I think that, you know, there's no uh, proof of it as 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 to this moment, but there's no, Hamas is known for also have close cooperation or close, you know, support from. Uh, Tehran from Iran, and I think that you do have, uh, you do see Iranian fingerprints, although it's, uh, you know, they, they still need to be uh, exposed. But definitely, Hamas is highly is highly motivated to to, you know, get Israeli hostages, to make its uh, point heard, to embarrass Israel. They know they cannot defeat Israel, but they can uh, make Israel uh, suffer and 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 make you know bring to casualties and so on i think that that's uh, part of what hamas thinking is i also think that hamas is wanting to make send a message to all these arab countries in the region across the region normalizing ties with israel and especially as there a lot of there's a lot of talk about a possible saudi israeli deal in the making you know, supported by the us that you know arab israeli normalization is something that shouldn't be on the table at all i think this hamas was sending a message 
to these Arab states, you know, uh, hold your horses. And, uh, you know, this is not, you know, you should stick up for the Palestinians. The Palestinian struggle is the number one issue. And therefore, and I think that this uh, interest is also shared by Iran, both Iran and Hamas and other Palestinian uh, uh, sectors are also not thrilled about or, or are opposed very much to Arab-Israeli normalization. I think this was also part of it. It is an ongoing situation. What happens in the coming days um, still yet to be determined. We don't do know that the Israeli government has said it's going to move its citizens in Israel further away from the Gaza Strip. It has warned Gazans to flee where they would go within the, the territory. Um, people are wondering. Um, many people are saying a ground incursion will happen. Uh, and given all that, and, and given that we actually don't know um, exactly what's going to happen, Israel's security cabinet... Um, just authorized significant military steps. What that looks like will wait to be seen. But what is your, what are you sort of thinking about in the days and weeks ahead? I think first of all, Israel has got to get its act, act together and is beginning, you know, has already started yesterday to push off the offensive and uh, you know, make sure that, inner, that you know, the villages, towns, areas uh, along the border are safe without any terrorist presence, and also try and seek the release of uh, hostages and prisoners of war and so on. But then I think that we will see a continued offensive, as this is a state of war, uh, continued airstrikes, continued uh, uh, a launch of a ground operation. I don't know if it will be limited in scope or, or massive in scope. Uh, targeting of, uh, of Hamas leadership in the Gaza Strip, and, and also you know making... Uh, Making Hamas pay for for, for what it did, uh, you know. I just don't. I I personally don't believe that there's a military solution for the Gaza crisis, and therefore, you know, this war can be long and hard fought, and many lead to many casualties. But solving the Gaza uh, issue, which has been uh, you know there for, for for many years, is will take will take more than that. Israel needs to set clear strategic goals of what it wants to achieve and not just, you know, send troops in and get ready for a prolonged presence, which God knows what it will bring. So Israel has to think of, of, of what, what's ahead. But, but I unfortunately see this as uh, taking, taking, this will take a long time. This will not be overnight. And I think weeks and perhaps months of, of fighting that will eventually lead to some sort of uh, temporary resolution. But without a political solution to the Gaza issue, I think that Gaza will remain a very sore spot uh, for Israel in, in the coming years. This has also long been the case, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Dan Arbel, I appreciate your um, help um, with for us, understanding this better in your assessment. Thank you very much. Do take good care. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks. Bye. Dan Arbel is a scholar in residence at the Center for Israeli Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. He's also a former longtime member of the Israeli Foreign Service, most recently Deputy Chief of Mission at the Embassy of Israel in Washington. This is the Sunday Magazine podcast for Sunday, October the 8th. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay.
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Canada fully supports Israel's right to defend itself. And no doubt what's happening in the Middle East will dominate foreign policy conversations in our country in the days ahead. But this is far from the only international issue that the federal government is dealing with. Between the fallout after a Ukrainian-Canadian veteran who served in a Nazi unit was honoured in the House of Commons and relations with India, which Justin Trudeau says are at a quote, extremely difficult juncture after his accusation that agents of the Indian government killed a Canadian on Canadian soil. This is all on top of a tough landscape at home as Canadians look to the government to help with housing and food affordability. Globe and Mail journalist John Ibbotson is a longtime commentator on the Canadian political scene. And John says there are lessons to be learned for navigating today's challenges from two prominent past PMs. He explores this in his book. It is called The Duel, Diefenbaker, Pearson, and the Making of Modern Canada. John, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Good morning, Pia. Okay, I started just now. It's a a list uh, describing some of the big global challenges Canada faces. And now this weekend, we see another major international crisis with the situation in the Middle East. How does the last 24 plus hours complicate or change things for Prime Minister Trudeau? Or does it? Well, we're seeing something that um, is important in an age of increasing polarization, which is the immediate um, expressions of solidarity for the people of Israel by the prime minister, by the leader of the official opposition, by the leader of the NDP, the Bloc Québécois. So um, one of the things that I argued in an essay in the Global Mail this weekend is that uh, Diefenbaker and Pearson, who, by the way, were stalwart supporters of Israel. Uh, Pearson chaired the UN committee that recommended the creation of the State of Israel. Um, And uh, Diefenbaker, as prime minister, uh, fully supported Israel uh, during his entire tenure. The kind of uh, political and social solidarity that characterized the 1950s and 60s allowed Diefenbaker and Pearson together to create much of the social safety net that we have today, create uh, the foundations of the foreign policy that we have today. Um, I worry that there is an increasing level of political polarization uh, occurring in Canada that puts that kind of solidarity at risk. But on this day, um, in the wake of these horrific uh, events, these horrific attacks by terrorists uh, against uh, the people of Israel, I think we can say that all Canadians, uh, virtually all Canadians at least, are united in support of Israel, um, worried only that in their rage, uh, their very understandable rage, they will be able to make wise judgments about how best to proceed. Mm-hmm. And people, of course, concerned about civilians on all sides of this conflict in Gaza and Palestinians as well, as well as Israelis. Um, let's talk about uh, Justin Trudeau as um, a diplomat, because, you know, I just mentioned India, there's the war in Ukraine, there's a situation in Israel and the Palestinian territories. You know, when he came into power, John, I think people would argue he's pretty good on the world stage. Things are going pretty well for him on the diplomatic front. What have the past couple of weeks revealed about what kind of diplomat Justin Trudeau is? And I put that in the context of you looking at the diplomatic achievements of Lester B. Pearson, the Liberal, uh, who's PM from 63 to 68, and who many Canadians look to as sort of the penultimate or ultimate um, diplomat. Yeah, uh, of course, part of the problem is simply this government is going on now eight years old and governments uh, age and as they age, they accumulate barnacles on the ship of state and that's happening here. You're absolutely right. Again, 
the early years of the Trudeau government were marked by a considerable success in foreign policy, and in many ways they were implementing uh, programs that were launched uh, by Stephen Harper in the same way that uh, um, Lester Pearson in areas like pensions and Medicare and immigration was completing programs that were launched by John Diefenbaker. So you had uh, the completion of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, trade talks, the completion of the European Union trade talks. And then when Donald Trump became um, president and threatened uh, NAFTA, uh, the Liberal government worked well and effectively to preserve that crucial trade agreement. But, you know, things happen. Um, efforts to uh, launch a free trade talks with China went uh, nowhere. And instead, um, relations with China have increasingly deteriorated as it became apparent that China was interfering actively in the politics of this country. The Trudeau government also hoped to improve trade relations and relations overall with India. But first of all, there was that, you know, rather embarrassing trip of, of, of a few years ago. And then uh, now um, really serious uh, deterioration of relations um, as the prime minister alleges that the Indian government was complicit in the killing of a Canadian citizen. So part of it, I would say, is the inevitable result of any government just accumulating problems and grievances as it goes on, maybe getting a bit tired, a bit long in the tooth. Um, but I think it's reasonable to say that you could at one and the same time um, celebrate the uh, foreign policy and trade accomplishments of the early years of the Trudeau government while wondering uh, why they are running out of steam on so many fronts. Hmm. Okay, let's talk about Pierre Polyev. Um uh, conservative opposition leader, official opposition. He doesn't shy away from using populist rhetoric. I should mention he's doing very well in the polls. Um, he criticizes um, the liberals as gatekeepers and corporate oligarchs. He talks about giving people their freedom back. He promises to axe the tax, which is the carbon tax that he's referring to. John Diefenbaker was also considered a populist. How, how similar or different are Diefenbaker's and Polyev's brands of populism? The similarity lies in a mutual suspicion and distrust of uh, elites, in especially the elites in central Canada, the political, public service, um, academic, media elites who tend to set and uh, and govern the agenda. Um, Pearson, uh, Diefenbaker, excuse me, resisted that uh, from the West, and uh, Polyev is resisting that from the West as well. But there was also a big difference in the nature of their populism. John Diefenbaker grew up poor. Uh, he grew up poor. Uh, the family moved to Saskatchewan when he was eight, uh, and he uh, lived on a homestead, and the homestead did not do well. He was looked down upon for, for his German name um, and made fun of uh, through much of his childhood and, and, indeed, much of his adult life. He responded to that by becoming a, uh, an attorney, a defense attorney, and a crusading defense attorney. His populism was rooted in... Uh, the fact that he grew up among people who were poor. Um, he represented people who were poor, women who uh, explained to him why they had to kill, uh, a woman who explained to, her, to him why she had to uh, bury her baby without telling anyone that it had died, uh, a woman who killed her husband because she felt that if she did not kill him, he would kill her. Um, Métis and, uh, in, uh, and other Indigenous First Nations uh, defendants who would otherwise receive no effective counsel at all. His populism then was rooted in the fact that he came from the people, uh, represented the people, and understood uh, the plight of the common man, as it would have been said in the time. And, uh, and that was a faith that he held uh, in them and a faith that they held in him and, and, and who stayed with him through election after election after election. 
I don't know that Pierre Polyev's populism is rooted in that way. Um, he has been in public life um, ever since he was elected to Parliament in, in 2004. I wonder, and we're going to wait and see, how, to what extent uh, Pierre Polyev, if he were to become Prime Minister, would manifest the, the populism of John Diefenbaker in the sense of representing, um, you know, Mr. and Ms. Joe Citizen in the face of entrenched elites in central Canada, or to what extent he would simply try to um, exacerbate resentments uh, and, um, and play partisan and, and polarizing lines. I certainly hope, if he becomes prime minister, he lives in uh, John Diefenbaker's legacy and does the former. Um, I'm from Saskatchewan, and I, I think... Diefenbaker's legacy in that province, in my home province, might be seen a little bit differently than elsewhere in as much as people tend to be, you know, proud when when one of their own sort of makes it. Um, But given just what you said about John Diefenbaker, and given that you also write in your book, you say John Diefenbaker has been unfairly treated by history. How how did we get to that? Given what you just explained about Diefenbaker, and I think how he's seen historically, how, how did we get to unfairly treating him? Yes, and remember, uh, this is a joint biography, so it deals not only with the legacy of John Diefenbaker, but with the legacy of, of Lester Pearson, because the two are so tightly intertwined. When I was growing up and through most of my life as a journalist, the conventional wisdom was that John Diefenbaker's uh, prime ministerships uh, failed, uh, that he was erratic, unpredictable, paranoid, the the guy who cancelled the Avro who got into a huge fight with the Bank of uh, Canada, the governor who angered the Americans, uh, basically blew the biggest majority government up to that time in Canadian history. Um, and then Lester Pearson came along and gave us uh, Medicare, gave us Canada Pension Plan, gave us the flag, and all was well and good. But over the course of you know, the last 30 years of journalism, I kept coming across um, incidents where, oh, that started out on Diefenbaker's watch. Oh, hmm. that program was actually launched by Diefenbaker and in, continued and improved by Pearson. And it became more and more apparent that this... The, the, the Peter C. Newman book, Renegade and Power, which in many ways defined the legacy of John Diefenbaker and which which portrayed him as a failed prime minister, uh, was wrong. Um, that in areas of immigration, in areas of health care, in areas of pension, and in areas of foreign policy as well, um, Diefenbaker and his cabinet ministers launched major reforms that the Pearson government then took and gave greater coherence to and improved upon. And the, the two of them then um, can be seen jointly as in some ways, the fathers of the welfare state uh, that Pierre Trudeau uh, inherited in 1968 and, then that, and that we still live in today. So I give Diefenbaker credit um, for being a much better prime minister than history would give him credit for uh, up until now, uh, without in any way diminishing the accomplishments of Lester Pearson, because really uh, the two worked hand in glove. Mm-hmm. They, they detested each other and fought each other relentlessly for a decade. But in fact, they, in terms of policy, they were working together whether they knew it or not. Hmm. Okay. And, and on the Pearson file, of course, you know, um, he was seen as as inventing, in quotes, uh, peacekeeping for Canada. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for organizing the UN's emergency force um, to resolve the Suez Canal crisis, um, made Canada a peacekeeping mission, kept Canada out of the Vietnam War. And if we, if we use him as sort of a starting point, 
I want to talk about where we've gotten to, because I know we're half a century away from those days. But when you hear that our current liberal federal government plans to cut one million billion dollars, pardon me, from Canada's military budget, um, how many countries accuse Canada of not living up to our NATO budget promises? How did Canada get from a country under Pearson um, from those days of Pearsonian peacekeeping to where we are now? Much of it started with Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre. Pierre Trudeau thought that uh, Pearsonian di- uh, diplomacy largely consisted of saying, ready, are you ready to the Americans? This was not fair and it was not true. Canada was instrumental in the, in, uh, in helping to found the, uh, NATO, for example. We were major players um, in the United Nations. We had a robust defense force uh, and a robust military budget. We were respected um, within NATO uh, as a major contributor to it. But Pierre Trudeau decided that Canada should take a slightly, well, considerably more non-aligned approach. And in doing so, he cut funding to the military. Um, Brian Mulroney uh, restored some of that funding, but in the face of budget challenges in the 1990s, Jean Chrétien continued the path of cuts to defense. Uh, Again, Stephen Harper bolstered defense during the commitment to the Afghanistan mission, but ultimately defense spending was cut uh, there as well and uh, cut further under Justin Trudeau. They, the, all these governments maintained that they were investing in uh, aircraft and ships and, um, and soldiers and so on. But in fact, money, much of the money that was committed was never spent. And Justin Trudeau um, reportedly told his NATO leaders that Canada would never reach the 2% of uh, GDP defense spending that this country had, in fact, repeatedly committed itself to. So there's also a sense of hypocrisy um, uh, that that Canada talks a good game uh, but doesn't spend what needs to be spent in order to walk the walk um, and indeed says one thing in public and a different thing in private. And again, uh, that leads to deteriorating um, status on the world stage. You've had a chance to get inside these two uh, former leaders' heads, so to speak, John Ibbotson, to try and understand what they wanted for Canada. As you said, they fought like heck, but they worked together. What do you think Diefen Baker and Pearson would say to Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau if they had the chance? I think both of them would say you need to spend more money on defense to start with. Um, again, uh, Diefen Baker uh, was instrumental in the creation of the North American Air Defense Agreement, a NORAD. Um, he would be, I think, appalled to see the extent to which Canada's participation in NORAD has declined. Uh, Diefenbaker was the prime minister who uh, celebrated the notion of opening the north. Now, again, that's opening the north to southerners. There, there are plenty of people in the north there already. Um, but uh, he wanted Canada to, to look at its Arctic ter- 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 territories as a, a new frontier. Um, he would be... I think, horrified to see the extent to which uh, Canada has um, reduced its commitments in the Arctic. Uh, It really has no ability whatsoever now to project sovereignty in a realistic way, even as China and Russia become much more aggressive in uh, their efforts to be be present in that region. Um, Similarly, I think Lester Pearson would be um, uh, concerned about Canada's uh, lack of commitment uh, within NATO. We do have a battle group in Latvia. We are bolstering that battle group. But especially given the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Canadians should be far more robust in um, the participation uh, within our defense alliances. I think they would both be quietly, maybe perhaps not so quietly, dismayed at how much our profile and our commitment has deteriorated over the decades. John, thank you for... Um 
putting this all into historical context for us, as I say, I think sometimes you know, the names of our former prime ministers fall off our lips, but we don't fully understand them. So I, I thank you for your book, for helping us understand them better. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. John Ibbotson is a political columnist with The Globe and Mail. His newest book is called The Duel, Diefenbaker, Pearson, and the Making of Modern Canada. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay here with you on the Sunday Magazine. Okay, maybe you're stuffing that turkey or baking up a storm on this Thanksgiving weekend, but it's time. I'm asking you nicely to put down the turkey baster or whatever your your hands are doing right now and pick up a pen because it is time to test my brain and yours and play our monthly challenge that's puzzling. Once a month, I take on one of my CBC colleagues and a super smart listener of Sunday Magazine. We play a series of brain games. What fun! The man who sets the challenges, the man who so enjoys making my life miserable, on the one hand, when he makes these puzzles hard. Hope that's not the case for today. But also makes my life joyous when I get to win is none other than Peter Brown. Hey, Peter. Miserable and joyous. Yep, uh, miserable. Most recently, your big three three peat streak was broken. Mm-hmm. So we're starting again this week. Uh, we're going to test, I guess, to test your resilience, your hang in thereness, your Saskatchewan Rough Riders never say die spirit. Yes. Two people will try to prevent you from getting back up on that pedestal. The first in Vancouver. He is the host of CBC Vancouver's morning show, The Early Edition. He is Stephen Quinn. Stephen, hello and welcome. I thought it would be Will Shorts. <laughs> It's, well, it's, it's, Peter, it's Peter Brown. Yeah, we're all a Canada's little disappointed. Will Shorts. Canada's Will Shorts. Okay. Yes. Uh, nice, to, nice to hear you, Peter. Pia, how are you? I'm great. I'm really good. I miss you, my I friend. I miss you too, my You're friend. So I haven't away. seen you out here in a million years this and country, I haven't been there for a while. Yeah, this country is very large. And, yes, it is um, indeed. Thanks for having me. This yeah, is exciting. I was uh, thinking earlier and saying earlier, uh, we wanted to do karaoke together in 2003 in Vancouver. We did. And we so will fun. not do that on the air now. Really? No, we will not. I'm going to step in because this is getting too friendly. <laughs> you are you are at best frenemies at this point. Okay. Uh, now, Stephen, in some of your promotional pictures that I've seen, yes. you are wearing the reading glasses down on the bridge of your nose, and uh-huh. you look like a person who would crush a cryptic crossword. Is that a no. fair... No? No. Not a cryptic crossword. I, I don't actually. I'm not. A, I'm not a crossword player. I love. I love word game. I mean, I'm. I'm doing the wordle occasionally, but I'm yeah. not a. I'm not a big crossworder. And just because I wear reading glasses on the edge of my nose, no, I'm just blind. Oh, <laughs> so it's so. more astigmatism than intellectual curiosity. Uh, correct. You are correct. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad I look the parts. I yeah. convince people. <laughs> yeah. But I'm basically a moron. So okay. there you are. Good. We've set the bar low. Great. Two yeah. morons have showed up to the table, Peter Brown. Let's see <laughs> let's, who our other contestant let's is. Let's meet our third possible moron. And our third player qualified <laughs> for today's game by entering our That's Puzzling Listener Challenge. We asked listeners to send us a real word, not a made up one, a real word, something obscure from their profession or hobby or a fun word they've come across, and to challenge the three of us. I'm playing this. I don't know the word. This listener is about to say hello and challenge us with their word. They are Ruth Hodder in Winnipeg. Hello, Ruth. Hello. Ruth, how much of a puzzler are you? Well, 
I do Wordle, Cordle, Waffle. Oh, she's no moron. No moron. <laughs> I play Scrabble. Oh, I play Scrabble. Uh, I just love all of those things. So. Let me make two things clear. One, I have not seen Ruth's word. I'm going to be guessing as well. And secondly, this is a warm-up round. There are no points at stake, just trash talk, which is really the point. So, Ruth, if you are ready, lay it on us. What is your actual word? My word is sedulous. What? Can you spell it? <laughs> S-E-D-U-L-O-U-S. Sedulous. Sedulous. Almost so, rhymes with ridiculous. Oh, mm -hmm. Totally rhymes with incredulous. <laughs> Stephen. Oh, my God. Any sense what that word might mean? Well, it's the ulus that is getting me on it. The sed yeah. um, sedulous. I can't even imagine where the word comes from. What's sed you? Where's it? Where does that come from? I'll take a shot. Okay. Wait, I'm I said you can take a shot. Get it? Said you. Oh, said nice. You. Oh, okay. Said you less. That's not a hint. That's me no. just making things up because I don't don't know what. I it think is. said is related to sediment, wow. and I think it is sedulous is having the quality of being layered or stacked. That is my official <laughs> and totally blind guess. How's that? Sedulous. <laughs> Fabulous. Like a cake, as in Beautiful, using it in a sentence. How's the chocolate cake? It's well, we have to wait wait in here all three before you judge me, Ruth. I'm, that oh, might okay, be as close okay. as anyone gets. I, okay. I think it's something either in speech or or like a, like a, a, emotional. I mean, I think it's an adjective. I think it's um, because of incredulous, I think. I think sedulous has to be somehow uh, related. I don't know. Um, could uh. you do something sedulously, Ruth? Yes, you could. Ooh. You could. So if I do something sedulously, what does that sound like I'm doing? Don't, 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 Ruth, don't help him out anymore. He's mining for hints. No, I'm not mining for I'm hints. Not. I'm just trying to work it out of my own head. Sedulously. I, um, or sedulous. I don't know. Pia, will you want to, you want to take over I, and, and got, I'll keep thinking here? I, I cannot behave like a dictionary, which you all are doing very well at. Sedulous. Oof, I don't know. I have no idea, Ruth, and this better have a good definition. It's I'm, a beautiful definition. Uh, oh, give yay. us Give us a little hint. Okay. The word was very popular in the 19th century. So mm. think England, not 19th century, okay. Queen Victoria, mm. Protestant. Uh, I say you're looking rather sedulous today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. I think you stumped us all, Ruth. What does it mean, Ruth? It means diligent, careful, and using a lot of effort, meticulous, thorough, assiduous. Ah. Uh, I think it's okay. a wonderful word. It's. I think it should come back in the 21st century. Bruce, let me um, ask you this. Yes. <laughs> when you're out in Winnipeg, I know you play some pickleball. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm already taking you on here. When you go play some pickleball or you go to the market or you go do... In what situation, Ruth, in 2023, is Ruth going to use the word sedulous? Uh, <laughs> I have to think about that. That's a big question. Uh, well, I when, could say that I sedulously practice my piano every day. Oh, well, you've stumped us, Ruth, and we've all learned something. Whatever else okay. happened, we all feel both smarter and more ashamed. Oh, so no, congratulations. I, I do not feel smarter. I no. feel dumb, dumb, dumb. I, I feel particularly <laughs> bad by being beaten by a pickleballer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, you know, Stephen, way to if, go, Ruth. If you apply yourself Thank sedulously, you. <laughs> you can achieve Ruth's level. So uh, there we go. Bragging rights go to Ruth. 
You have proved you, you are one word smarter than the three of us. <laughs> and now we're going to dig in and play for real. It's time to get into That's Puzzling. Today we're going to start by playing my favorite game, Potato Potato. I'm going to give you two words and ask you to tell me which other word means both of those things and has two different pronunciations. So, for example, if the clues I gave you were unit of time and tiny, the answer would be minute and minute. They look the same on paper, they're spelled the same, but they're pronounced differently and it has two different meanings. Any questions before we jump in for real? No questions. No, I'm good. No. Ruth is just riding the high. (laughs) (laughs) It's all downhill from here. You know what? It doesn't even matter because you have so (laughs) soundly thrashed us. I will offer each question to one player. If they miss, they have an opportunity to take a hint. And if they still don't get it, others can steal. And these are worth two points. Let's play Potato Potato. Stephen, I have good news. You're up first. Oh, no. We are looking for a word. That can either mean movement of the air or coil. This word has two meanings, movement of the air or coil. I'll let you process for a minute and you can... Oh, uh, uh, wind and wind. That is correct, Stephen. The Society of Morons phoned and your membership is rescinded. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That was was an easy one. So I don't know. All right. All right. Maybe they're going to caucus about whether or not his membership is up. All right. All right. That is is pending. That wasn't that difficult. That just took me a moment there. Two people piped in to say that was quite easy. Let's hear from both of them. Ruth. Are you (laughs) ready, Ruth? We are looking... Ruth, we're looking for a word that can mean either plummeted or a symbol of peace. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Did you just swear on the radio on the National Public Broadcaster, Ruth? I'm loving it. (laughs) A symbol of peace. Oh, that's easy. Hey, I'm in Mennonite land here, and the symbol of peace would be a dove and plummeted uh, dove. That is exactly right, Ruth. I don't know what you were um, being profane about there. Maybe it's just how good a, a clue you had gotten. Um, can't, can't just question, since I didn't know that one. So yeah. since Ruth swore on air, can I swear on air? No. <laughs> it's your, your bleeping show, Pia. <laughs> well, I'll do what my kids do and say, they do one of two things. They say frig. Yep. Or they say, I'm so angry. They, oh. they use the beep. I yep. like that. Uh-huh. Always good policy in front of a live microphone. You can say anything you want on the radio once. No, it's yes. true. It, I will just yes. say for our listeners that um, putting... No, it's it's great. People swear, Ruth. It's okay. That There are no actual legal barriers to swearing on the radio in Canada. The U.S. has different rules. Oh, wait. What's going on at Ruth's house? This is the police. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pia. Your two competitors have nailed the first round. It is up to you. Uh-huh. Your word can mean either behavior or supervise. Supervise. Behavior or supervise. Oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. Sedulous. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, That is the right answer to the wrong question. Uh, Supervise, watch over, um, guard. I can give you a hint if you want. Give me a second. Um, Behavior. It can mean behavior, so not a specific kind of act. Oh, yeah, I'm going to need that hint. Um, Supervise in the context of a musical group. Agent. 
agent. <laughs> it's a ver- oh. agent. We're looking for oh. a verb here. Wait, supervise in terms of uh, a musical group. Uh, supervise, orchestrate. Um, no, I want to steal. 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 Stop it! I want to steal. Stop it, Winnipeg and Vancouver. No pressure, Pia, but everyone knows this but you. You know what? I'm speaking to, you know, in radio we say speak to one person. Think yes. Of, I'm talking to you, one person out there who also doesn't know the answer to this. <laughs> Supervise. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll get it as soon as someone tells me and I'll go. Yes, you're about to go. Oh, now it happens. Luck of the draw. Stephen, you get first chance to steal. What do you think it is? Uh, conduct and conduct. Oh. There it is. Yes. So at the end of round one, Stephen is in the lead with four giant points. Ruth is in second with two medium-sized points. And Pia, who now has the opportunity to stage the comeback of the century, is not yet on the board. So we turn now to our final round. For our final round today, we're going to stick with Potato Potato. We begin with Pia. Pia, the two meanings of your word are... Stop. Can I win this thing still? Yes, you can. Okay. Just checking. You need to win. You're hey. gonna leave if you can't. <laughs> well, do you um, give up when you're really behind at Scrabble, or like you're just like, oh, they're gonna win? I'll just, or are you like, I can make a comeback? Because this will tell us something about our three personalities. I'm all for the comeback. Uh-huh. Yeah, me too. Oh, me too. Okay, well, tell we us. all believe it can be done, Pia. Can it be done by you? I'm gonna manifest as the kids. Okay. Say. Manifest. What you need is to get this one right, and then a steal, and then you could be in. <laughs> you could be in the running. So, okay. Pia, mm-hmm. we're looking for a word that can mean continues, and also profits. Continues, continues. and profits. Money. Um, pro- when you profit from something, you gain something. Continue. I'll give you. Uh, profits is a noun. It's not a verb. No. Okay. Not to That's profit. A, the not, profits. I didn't even ask for the hint. Now you're taking my that points That isn't away. even the hint. Oh, great. Okay. Profits. Um, continues. Goes on. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, dot, dot, dot. Continues. Oh, shoot. Language. No, that is not. In my house, the kids are allowed to say shoot. That's not considered the swear jar money one. Oh, Bruce, that all means I know it, Pia. Uh, you still have a hint? No, I don't know it. I'm trying to think it through. Okay, I can't I'll be quiet. Let us try and think it through. Continues, goes on. I still have a hint? Yep. Okay, give me my hint. Continues as in gets on with it. Oh, yeah, that, that's what uh, continues yeah. means. Yeah. Oh, I hear some noises from Vancouver of a mm-hmm. possible impending victory. Gets on with it. Yeah, I'm going to pass. Ruth, you get first chance to steal here. I have sedulously looked at the word and tried <laughs> to figure it out, and I cannot. Stephen proceeds and proceeds. Oh, there it is. man, oh, yeah. Ruth, we should have gotten that. Yes, yes, we should have. So go. Stephen has guaranteed the win. Pia, do you care to stay with us for a couple more minutes? <laughs> like I got better things to do. <laughs> like I just got to host the rest of the radio show. So, you know. Ruth, you could still tie Stephen if everything goes perfectly for you. Okay. So Ruth, okay. here, here are you, is your clue. We're looking for a word that means suitable or take possession of. Suitable. Oh, that's easy. What is it, take Ruth? Take possession. Um, okay. For, for, forgive my French. Uh, suitable, um, approprié, uh, um, appropriate. Yes. And take possession of appropriate and 
I just have to pronounce it. Just lean on the last so, syllable and you're uh, there. Appropriate. Yes, that's exactly yes. right. Yes. So, okay. S- Stephen has six. Oh. Ruth has four. He if- has left the building. <laughs> Thank you very much. Pia is doing some stretching and, and focusing up on next month. So this is going to go to Stephen. Stephen, if you okay. miss and Pia misses, Ruth can tie you. Okay. If you get this, I think eight points might be a record. Oh, wow. This could be oh, no a pressure. no pressure. Okay. No pressure. Okay. Your word can, and I think this is the hardest one. Oh. Your word can either mean an alcoholic beverage, that's one word, mm-hmm. or benefit, uh, as in for the benefit of. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've got it, Stephen. Oh, no pressure. No pressure. Uh, 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 if you don't a, get a it. cocktail or for the benefit of? An alcoholic beverage. Yep. It's al- not a cocktail for oh, yeah, sorry. An alcoholic beverage. And there is a hint. I'll take the hint, please. The alcoholic beverage can be served cold or warm. Who drinks warm alcohol? Oh, sorry. Oh, can you give me the, the original clue again? I'm yes, wondering. alcohol. So on the one hand, you have an alcoholic oh, beverage yes. that can be served warm or cold. Yes. And on the other hand, you have benefit, as in uh, I'm doing this for the benefit of such and such a person or cause. I am stumped. Okay. You think I wouldn't be stumped on the, on the, on the alcoholic <laughs> beverage? Hold on, Ruth. Pia can, Pia can get in the way of you tying the game. Pia, do you know what it is? No, I can only come up with cider. Also, That's all I can come warm up with. alcohol sounds gross. Drink well, it cold. Okay. Ruth, for the tie, do you know what it is? Yes. Uh, for the benefit of would be for the sake of. <gasps> and the alcoholic favorite, Saki. Oh, I have Saki written yes. down with an, with an I. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? Like S A K I? Yeah. Why? Yeah. That's not how you spell it. I know that's not how you spell it. Oh. Sake, sake, sake. You're, you're good, Ruth. It's, so it's Quinn here who doesn't know how to spell. Yeah. Here's what's happened, teams. We have a tiebreaker for oh, all no. the marbles. Oh, yeah? I'm not going to give it to one of you or the other. If you think you know it, just shout it out, one of the pronunciations or the other. Okay. okay. Stephen had six, was going for a record. Ruth climbed back in, and this might be the comeback of the century. Just shout it out if you have it. We can tell your voices apart. We are looking for a word that can mean straight line and also fight. Um. Row. Row. There it is. Stephen Quinn is our winner, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Oh, Ruth did the head fake. The final score, Stephen, six, plus a tiebreak win is eight. Ruth has six, and Pia plays for fun and to make friends. <laughs> I do. I do. And that brings us to the end of a very enjoyable round. Thanks to our players. Thanks to you for listening. And that is That's Puzzling. Thank you, Peter, Stephen, and Ruth. Whew, I blew it, man. We play That's Puzzling every month. You could join us on air next time if you want to put your name in contention. Here's the challenge. We want you to invent a word, a made-up word, to describe the tiny amount of time between raking your leaves and then seeing your lawn covered in leaves again. Email your made-up word to sunday at cbc.ca. Please put That's Puzzling in the subject line so we know it's for That's Puzzling, and please include your phone number. You have until the end of next Sunday, October 15th, to submit your made-up word, so please do that Sedulously. Ruth, do I got it? Did I use it right? You'll let me know. The winner will play next month and win the ultimate prize, a Sunday magazine coffee cup. 
And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Latifa Abdin, Sarah Joyce Battersby, Tracy Fuller, Levi Garber, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Aronde Williams. Our senior producer is Allison Maisman. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.